From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two more hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been coming to you via Zoom for the last two years, two years and about a week now. This is Cade Massey hosting today with my longtime collaborators, good buddies, and faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen's here. Good afternoon, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. Adi's away today doing Adi Weiner things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week, as you guys know. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, which is what we typically do these days. We're going to go two hours, of course. We're going to do COVID in the first quarter, as usual. And we've got an interview in the fourth quarter, NCAA basketball interview in the fourth quarter. We have a bonus interview in quarter two. We have the delight of talking to an NCAA March Madness coach on his way to practice. We're going to talk to the USF Dons head coach, Todd Golan, multiple time guest here on Wharton Moneyball coming up in Q2. We're going to get a few minutes with coach Golan as he prepares his team for their first March Madness seed since 1998. We're excited about that. But first, Fellas and listeners, we've got a little COVID conversation. Gentlemen, what in the world of COVID-19 has caught your eye over the past week? Well, I got a few things. Um, Maybe the one we'll start with is that, you know, it appears that, you know, Europe has always been like a few weeks to months kind of ahead of the U.S. in terms of what they're seeing is what we're going to see a few weeks later. And unfortunately, the data coming out of Europe recently has been a spike up in COVID, both in terms of infections and hospitalizations. Now, of course, a lot of that can be due, if not most of it may be due to the loosening of restrictions. Uh, We would expect as people move more, as masks are less required, we would expect both of those numbers to increase. And so now the question becomes, um, is there enough of a buffer between people that you know have been f- vaccinated, boosted, infected to not make it so that this is a massive spike up? And, and the question also relatedly that I, I was thinking of is, you know, it's not related to the other thing that caught my eye about the Pfizer CEO saying people are going to need a fourth shot. Um, how much protection do people have? Like how long, you know, in my case, I can just speak to myself. I got boosted now six months ago. And so, you know, a lot of people got boosted and then they're saying that the booster may only last between four to six months. So how much protection is out there? And is that what we're seeing in Europe now? That's what caught my eye. Yeah. And I mean, I think it also like just kind of, I think related to that, that observation or, or is, is what's going on in China right now, where China is, I think, seeing kind of some of its first kind of spikes back up. Um, and it's interesting because I was just kind of looking. I, I mean, I had no idea what the vaccination rates were like in China, but it's like, you know, like high 80s, not like low 90 percent in terms of vaccination. But of course, a less efficacious vaccine, but yes, presumably. And, you know, I think it's even, you know, both the vaccine itself, but also I, it's got me thinking kind of like you're thinking about the time span of time span of when those vaccinations actually occur, even if it was a very efficacious vaccine, like they had the Pfizer, something equivalent Pfizer Moderna, if they had like a big sort of like if if they kind of got their vaccinations done more effectively and earlier than we did. 
that, you know, are they boosting as well? Or have, have those kind of basically worn off? Are those kind of like, are they more kind of sensitive to Omicron because it's presumably like kind of our early vaccines, you know, tailored towards kind of, you know, the alpha variant and stuff like that. So I think, you know, I, I think we're kind of seeing this, you know, this is kind of our, you know, this is going to be an ongoing thing as we peacefully coexist with COVID from this point forward, you know, like how, you know, I think we're going to constantly have to sort of be renewing as an as individuals and as kind of a population. I mean, the good news is the following, at least, is that and this is even look, everybody admits, you know, I think they would admit obviously Pfizer has an incentive to say everyone needs to get a four shot. I mean, but let's forget the financial incentives. Even the Pfizer CEO admits that the booster is highly, highly effective still against hospitalization and death. It's not particularly highly effective, as he said, against uh, infection and also uh, against potential new variants. And so, you know, what they've been talking about now, which excites me even a little bit more, as they claim, at least that all the Omicron and its cousins will be covered by the next vaccine and that the shot will last for at least a year. That's that's the goal. That's what they're aiming for. For the next one, not anything we've seen already. You're saying nothing that we've seen so far. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. What they're saying is they have clear evidence now, mainly from Israel, that the booster shot lasts at most six months. That's its effect. I don't understand this because I think it was within the last two months that we've been told kind of the opposite, that, of course, the protection against just catching it fades very quickly. We've learned that. I thought we were told quite explicitly that, of course, we're gathering these data real time. So there's a limit to the observation window. But in the window that we had available, there was no decline in its effect against severe illness and hospitalization. And so now we're going from no decline to six months. I don't understand. Yeah, well, I, 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 I guess maybe I got confused with what you're saying, too, Eric. I thought yeah. there still is substantial protection against severe outcome, like hospitalization, death outcomes to being vaccinated. You know, I, I, I mean, again, yeah, I mean, there's almost no protection or, or, or less protect, substantially less protection against infection. But, you know, but I, I thought that, again, being boosted, being vaccinated in general still offers substantial protection on hospitalization. So, you know, I, I see like 10 to 20 times. I know, but the question is duration. And I thought that we were told that there was no degradation over time in what we had observed so far. But maybe now, maybe since we've got a longer observation window, right. we are seeing yep. that degradation. Yeah, and that's, and that's at least the claim is that we're starting to now have enough data to be able to tell, you know, before it was three months, four months, but now we're at the people were at the six month range even of boosting and so now the question is how long will the booster last and the implication i got was that there hasn't been a lot of degradation over this but they're starting to get data in that six month is pushing the boundary of the previous dosage and type of vaccine even for the boosted <laughs> well if that's but, I mean, true, the actual well, rate of hospitalizations for... and death of COVID itself has gone down over time as well worth noting right omicron compared to the alpha variant omicron for sure is, you know i mean you know getting basically get you know uh getting getting vaccine the natural get, getting vaccinated or like not vaccinated but getting immunized the natural way of of actually catching covid has that has less dramatic health consequences than a, what what we were doing with at the first 
you know, for well, the first but, couple but there's the, the epidemiologists have been making sure we don't carry forward this myth that viruses get weaker over time. They're, they're, they've really been beating the drum. Well, here's the number. They're not destined to, but this one actually has. I'll just read you. Not monotonically, not monotonically. So if you go through all the variants, it hasn't been that everyone's been weaker than the one before. Yeah, here's just some data from, here's just some data. This was a month ago. So I'll I'll look for a more recent article, but this was in the Washington Post. Um, The vaccine was 91% effective in preventing a vaccinated person from being hospitalized during the the two months after a booster shot. But after four months, protection fell to 78%. So this is against hospitalization. So it went from 91% after two months, boosting down to 78. And it appears now, actually, I'm looking here. uh, Now it appears to be against hospitalization down to 66% after four months. And this, according to this, after more than five months, vaccine effectiveness fell to roughly 31%, but that was imprecise due to sparse data. So again, this is as of a month ago. Vaccine or booster? Booster is what it's saying here. And what what sample is that? What group is this? Uh, It doesn't make it clear here. Uh, This is data provided, a study published Friday by the center of, this is by the CDC, so here it is. I'll just read it to you. This is waning two-dose and three-dose effectiveness of mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. So this is a study. Let me just see who's here in the study. Uh, I'll, I'll look for it quickly. It looks to be about 250,000 people in the study. As, 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 a, as, a, as a further complication, are we talking about hospitalizations from COVID or with COVID? I, I, they're saying uh, from COVID. But they're basically showing the net, the data that I just said, 91, 78, 66. Like that is the, you know, two months, four months, five plus months. So I guess, Kate, it's back to what I was saying earlier, that when the uh, Pfizer CEO Burla is saying he believes that another shot is needed, I think he's saying as people are starting to get to the six month and therefore people might be getting 60 percent protection against yeah. hospitalization. I think to many people, that's starting to get to a number that they feel less comfortable with. 60% sure. is much different than 90 plus percent. And so, it, but, it, but I just, you know, pointing out from what you originally said, which made it sound like zero, you know, no, that 60% is still protective. Uh, but no, yeah. I'm, I'm reacting to coming off of 90 because it was not that long ago that we were told that it seemed to be pretty steady indefinitely. Now, the caveat there was indefinite was only a short period of time observed, mm-hmm. but we were told no degradation. And I so, think that's, and I agree with you. I even remember saying that, that that's what a couple of weeks ago on the show, that that's what the curve showed, kind of this flat curve at 90% yeah. protection for long periods of time. And again, this recent CDC study and the statement by the Pfizer CEO suggests that's not true. And it appears that six months appears to be about the period by which Many well, people are going to want to have boosting if a, fourth, a second boosting or a fourth shot, if you want, yeah. to provide that equal level of protection over the first couple months. Well, as you say, this changes the way you feel about going through the world. I was just over on the West Coast over the past weekend and in, in large events and public transportation and restaurants and just enjoying life without a mask, partly even philosophically on the potential that we might actually have to close back down again. So I'm like, okay, while we're good, let me be good. 
But I ran around thinking I was probably 90% protected against hospitalization, not 60%. I, I don't think if you got your booster shot, which I think I know when you got yours, you know, five to six months ago, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. And again, yeah, right. back, let me go back to my initial thing, what caught my eye. This is, the, this is what they're seeing in Europe. They're seeing a significant rise in the number of infections and hospitalizations. Well, let's they're talk not nearly as the- boosted as a population, are they? Actually, the rate is I higher. I, I, for boosting for the for a third shot in Europe, I didn't think that was the case. But you know, again, I you know, I, I'm not sure. I have I you know, I, I checked recently. I mean, that's a little bit harder. We don't you know, it's I'm not sure. I've I've seen that track. Well, it gets to my it actually gets to my uh, comment, Shane. That I'm not even sure. This is just, it's maybe it's just the jargon, but it's the way it gets sold to people statistically. I'm not even sure two shots anymore, given when most people would have gotten those two shots, should be called fully vaccinated anymore. Why is that? Like, who made up that language? That uh, we, that's we, fully well, I mean, it's it, I think it's part of a general problem that we're considering, you know, like in, the, in this entire like conversation of society that we're talking about vaccination, like it's a binary variable. When really it's a continuous variable, right? Because, like, you know, a, it's, like a gas, you know, there's a there's yeah. a gas gauge, and and you fill up at one time, but then over time, it, this thing's declining, and we should all have kind of a meter that tells us, right? Yeah, that would be the kind of right way of thinking about. It. But of course, that's very po- complicated with everybody's yeah. meter being at like a different point. Everybody's meters at a different point, but there ought to be an app. There ought to be an app for that. In fact, I think we talked about this with one of our guests a few months ago. There ought to be an app for that, where if you punch in basically when you got these vaccinations, which vaccinations they were and how long ago. Yeah. Give us an approximate. And maybe, you know, those approximations are changing over time, but they could give us an approximate. And mine's reading 63% right now, apparently, which is lower than I would have thought. Which well, is again, that that app would want to take into account your age and stuff like that too. I don't, we're yeah, about I, don't, I guess. That's right. Like that. I guess. that's We'd like that CDC, that 250,000 CDC study that Eric was just talking about can surely break things down by age. And that would be, helpful. Um, but let's stay with these data for a second, because Europe is one thing, China is one thing. Europe, they're talking about this new variant. The BA2 variant is apparently one of the reasons this thing is going up in Europe. And it's, apparently the BA2 is more contagious than Omicron. So, yep. and, and it's now 12% of the cases in the U.S., and so we're a little concerned that these t- upticks, because it's not a big spike we're seeing, but they are distinct upturns in European countries, both in cases and hospitalizations. And essentially, every time that's happened in the past, we've seen an upturn in the, in the U.S. as well. In China, it's a little different. And I was surprised to learn, this comes from David Leonard's article this morning in the New York Times. I was surprised to learn that there, there's been a fair bit of vaccine reluctance in China as well, in Hong Kong especially. And it's not the political thing necessarily, but it's a distrust of government because the government's earned distrust over there, especially among the Hong Kong folks. So apparently in Hong Kong, even among those who are elderly above 70, vaccination rates only 50%. So one of the reasons they're having such a big spike right now is that they're actually less vaccinated than we are. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So guys, by the way, I can, I'm just looking at the data right now. So I'll just, I can, this is great thing about doing this through Zoom. I'm sitting on my computer. I can show you guys live. So the boosting rate in, for example, Denmark, Italy, England, Israel, and France appears to be about twice that of the United States. So their boosting rate is somewhere around 50 to 60%. We're at around 30%. So this spike we're seeing in Europe is not due to lower boosting rates. As a matter of fact, theirs is double basically mm-hmm. our rate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, would have, I would not have known that the U.S. booster rate was only 30%. Um, it's a little surprising, is it not? Well, I, again, this is data. Uh, again, this is from some study in Oxford, et cetera. It doesn't necessarily make it entirely. I, I, I don't want to put 100% face validity on this data, but um, I don't think it's that different than the CDC reporting I'm as well. I'm not questioning it in any form or fashion. In fact, that chart showed it kind of plateauing at 30 percent. Like they've been they've been coming up on this line for a while, so it's not very surprising. I, it just surprises me. Well, here I have it right. At least according to the CDC, that number does appear low in the in the CDC data booster doses. It has about. Maybe they're counting for all people in the United States. People 12 and over in the United States, 46% have been boosted. 18 and over, 47%. The U.S. is 47% boosted. That's a pretty big difference compared to that other study. Well, well, the other one could be talking about all the total population. Okay. We may or may not get there from just that. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's going on in the U.S. right now is that this – the sewer systems in a wide number of cities are showing upticks in the COVID. absolutely, and this is um, this is one a super interesting thing when the pandemic. I, the first article you saw in this was months into the pandemic. I was like, "Oh, this is crazy! They're tracing this stuff through sewers," and now it's just a standard way people report what's going on in the country. It's a leading indicator um, and and a more reliable kind of indirect indicator of the the, the rate in the population. Well, I think now, I mean, it, it's, I think it's becoming increasingly more reliable given the number of home tests that people are doing, which is good, but you, that are not getting reported. Right. So you increasingly r- relatively more reliable than our other. Relative, right. I think the data yeah. from the wastewater, which is, uh, I remember first hearing about it actually in the summer of 2020 when mm-hmm. we were, you know. They're talking the about anti- testing universities that way, right? Like university yeah, well, dorms, a, for example, was a correct. real. That was one of the first examples. Use case. Like, Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe that was one of the first. Exa- right. Exactly. That was one of the first examples. And I exactly your point, Kate. It's becoming increasingly more reliable than the data on testing, given, again, people are doing home tests, which is great, um, but those aren't getting reported. So what do you guys think this means? If we were to we're we're we prediction is kind of what we do. Where do you think we're going with this? If we if Eric Topol, one of our guests, tweeted when he sees these ticks up in Europe, he figures, you know, chances are we're right on the heels. Are we sufficiently different to expect any other outcome? Or we, here we go again, kind of thing. Well, here we go again, being like this BA variant, this, like if it's BA2 or this variant, does, does kind of natural immunity to Omicron, like, you know, Right. Like, is, our, yeah. like how, how much, you know, how much immunity do it's we supposed get? To be, I mean, the vaccine probably is not going to confer a lot of immunity because it's a pretty new variant. And, you know, the vaccine was developed, the vaccines and current boosters were developed off of alpha. Right. But, but we're told that, that we, we don't get transmission protection, but we get severe illness protection from 
mm-hmm. earlier vaccines yep. on later variants. And so presumably that holds. But and, and presumably like that, we also get protection from, you know, previous infection. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. both those as well. So that, I mean, that you know, I mean is- an increasing amount of our pot, you know, the vaccines are going to be decreasingly affect or decrease in their effectiveness. But, you know, obviously a big chunk of our population, including the ones that refuse vaccines, there's a huge part part of that population that is relatively recently naturally immune. Well, that's that's that would be hugely helpful. In fact, the stat was surprising to me in Leonard's article. He says he cites somebody saying 45 percent of Americans got Omicron. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's how contagious that thing was. Mm -hmm. And yes, that is a nice little security blanket against future spread. Yeah, I think I think we're going to see the infection rates go back up. Um, I also think, you know, there's another shot in our future. And I think I, I said this last week, I think there's another shot in our future in calendar year 2022. I do. I think I, I th- and I'm hoping that Pfizer has it ready or whoever it is, but that's the leading candidate right now before the heavier season, which tends to be in the late fall, early mm-hmm. winter. I mean, I have full expectation. I'm making this up. October, November, sometime shot number four is going to come. Uh, Pfizer claims it'll be ready. They'll have a billion doses ready. They claim it'll protect against a much broader spectrum and that it'll last a year. Add Add in the flu and it's basically our seasonal shot that we just do every year. Right. That's what I'm expecting. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I'm so th- and this I know that's Adi's attitude as well as like this is what endemic means. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious. I'm curious what it means for public policy and 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 sh- not quite shutdowns, but constraints placed on schools and businesses. And what, do we think we're going to see new shutdowns of a sort? I, I see only uh, the only way I think that would happen. It would have to be severe data to show that there would have to be a massive spike back up in deaths. And, and I think also it, differently. Also, I'll say one, it's not being a political statement here. I think it would have to be an increase in deaths among the vaccinated, because at some point people are like, we've tried to convince as many people as we can through education, through telling the mm-hmm. truth about yep. the effectiveness of vaccines. Um, before it was, I got to protect my fellow American and everybody still believes that. But at some point, you know, the people that choose not to get vaccinated, I think that's the difference from two years ago. And I think most people believe that at some level, the unvaccinated that that they're willing to take the increased risk. And there's only so much society can do to protect them. That's the big difference, I think. So a couple things on that one, we've worried a lot in the past, however you feel about the risk that the unvaccinated are taking on to them for themselves they are imposing a cost on the vaccinated by mm-hmm. hospitals, for example. Yep. So there is still that, even if you, even if you've got, even if you're fine with whatever damage they take on themselves. Um, the other question I'm curious about is whether there might be more, um, more tolerance for the, the trade-off between health and essentially economic activity for lack of a better term, including educational activity normal, normal, normal life activity. I, you know, especially as you go through different regions of the country, there are regions which kind of acted like this thing wasn't happening and went on pretty normal, at least after the first big shutdown, mm-hmm. like Texas, where I live. Yeah. And then there are regions which went the other way. And I was just, again, in Northern California, and it's just unbelievable. They, you still feel the effects walking through there. And I don't know what the right trade-off is. 
But I think people are a little more comfortable talking about that trade-off now. I think and, the other trade-off we're going to see as well um, is – uh, just to trade off against other forms of deaths that are being caused. And so I think that's the other thing we're going to see as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. So uh, some unfortunately new news on the COVID front, and there will be new, new news next week as well. We'll continue the conversation. That's been our first quarter. We've still got three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Cade Massey here with my longtime collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. And we are delighted to welcome into the first part of this quarter, a little special interview segment. We got Coach Todd Golan. Coach Golan is newly the coach of March Madness USF Dons. They haven't been there in 23, 24 years. And Coach Golan and the Dons are in the tournament. Coach Golan, as always, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Hey, Kate, Eric, always uh, my pleasure to be on here, and especially uh, after the great news received on Sunday. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. So I'll tell you what, you, you look a little different than you usually do. Are you on a bus right now? And what are you, what, <laughs> what are you, what are you doing right now? We legitimately just touched down in Indianapolis about 20 minutes ago. Uh, long, long flight, left early this morning out of, uh, out of Oakland. But here we are, and we're on the way to practice right now. So no, no better way to spend about 15, 20 minutes with you guys. <laughs> well, listen, um, you're mighty, mighty good to do so. Tell us what, you, what will you do in your first practice there in Indianapolis? How do you, as a coach, how do you think about how, how much are you going to tailor to your particular matchup on Thursday versus yeah. just keep the, keep the guys running because they've been playing good ball all, all season? Yeah, it's, it's actually a healthy blend, man. I think, uh, you know, we had a really good practice yesterday before we left, and that was more focused on us and trying to stay sharp and, and focus on the things that, you know, we know are really valuable. And today, uh, you know, try to get this flight out of our legs, and, and we'll start dipping into Murray, uh, spend some time there, and get to know the keys and the personnel uh, of their team a little bit today uh, before tomorrow we'll be fully focused on Murray. But a uh, healthy blend today and try to get, you know, like I said, try to get our legs back under us after this trip. Okay, so let's set a little details just so everyone knows. We're talking about the USF Dons, of course. They are a 10 seed. They've got a, a, a matchup against Murray State, a 7 seed on Thursday night, late game on Thursday night, 940 yep. Eastern, I believe. Um, Eric, you're going to jump in here. Yeah, so I want to ask you a question, Coach. One of the things I've always said is imagine five, six minutes into the game, you say Murray State all of a sudden plays a different style than they had in their data. Yep. I've always, as a coach, said, we got them. They can't. They realize they can't play their normal game and beat us. Or do you see it as the opposite way? Like, oh my God, we're screwed because we've been using the analytics on the past performance, and they've totally chosen option B. I, I tend to go with they know they're screwed and they can't beat us. But how would you perceive it? I, I would agree. You know, if if we go in there on on Thursday night and they start running some offense that they haven't ran all year, or playing lineup. Uh, lineups that they haven't had together all year that I would say that's a good sign for us and because you know you're you're at this point in the year we're all pretty good teams right that make the tournament all these teams have had a lot of success and uh you know if, if we're trying to make some big time adjustments at this point uh you know it's hard to change this late in the year to be honest you know you can change a little bit you can tinker with some things um, but if you're going with a whole new style this late in the year I think that's an advantage for the team that you're playing against following up on that though is there kind of like I mean I assume part of 
you know, the analytics of what you kind of review of the various teams you might face is kind of to a certain extent their, their, I guess, flexibility, either due to personnel or due to kind of style. How much do kind of teams going into this tournament, these top teams, how much do they kind of vary in terms of how flexible their play style is? You know what? I really, you know, it's hard. Like I said, I think at this point in the year, like we've played, we're 24 now, we played 33 games. You know, it'd be really hard for us to change uh, what we're doing and what we're really good at this late in the year while being able to improve. Like we could change and become worse, but, uh, you know, to change and get better would, would be really hard to do. Um, so, I, you know, Murray State, I have a pretty good sense of what they want to do. They have some really good players. They shoot it well from three. Uh, you know, they have a really high two-point field goal percentage. Uh, but, but we think we have some things that can counteract and, and can dictate the way the game is played. And if we can control the tempo, if we can control the style of the game, you know, I, I think that gives us a really big advantage. Coach, tell us how your team has evolved over the course of the season. And um, what do you think the benefits are of having played some pretty tough competition out there in your conference? So how, how, what have you seen from your team and how do you feel like you're different now than you were when you started back in October? You know what, the one area where our biggest change was last summer, to be honest, when we added uh, the student athletes that we did uh, both through the transfer portal and our young guys. And we realized that we had the type of talent that we needed to make an NCAA tournament run. That was that was the most important thing, because if you don't have the players, uh, you know, the, as many numbers as you want to crunch, you're not going to be able to find the incremental advantages to get better. So we did that. Uh, early in the year, we knew we had some really good success. We started shooting a, a very, very high two-point field goal percentage, which we've talked about in the past raised our floor and limited our volatility, which was a big key for this year's team. Um, we were not very good taking care of the ball early. We were uh, a lot of new pieces, a lot of new guys. We, we had one of the worst turnover rates in the country, uh, which was really frustrating. But at the same time, we saw a big gap for us to be able to, our big delta for us to take advantage of if we could improve in that area, because we were really efficient when we shot it. We were a really, really good basket making team. We just had trouble taking care of it. Now over the past uh, I would say two and a half months of the season, we've become an elite ball handling team. And that's really been the reason as to why we played at a top 20 level the last two months. Coach, how does that happen? How, the guys, guys tend to be either good with the ball or not good with the ball. How, how right. were you able to affect that kind of change? I think it was just comfort. You know, we had a lot of new pieces. We had a lot of new guys. You know, we had Jamari Bouye and Khalil Shabazz back from last year's team. But really the rest of the rotation outside of maybe Julian Rishwain uh, were guys that we've added. And so getting comfortable with our style of play, getting comfortable offensively, getting comfortable with where guys were going to be and when. And, and there is just a human element of just getting comfortable playing with your teammates. And I really think once we settled into the roles, uh, once we got comfortable and really figured out, you know, uh, where guys were going to be best and, and got to that rhythm for a couple of games, we really started to, to hit our stride that way. Mm-hmm. So, Coach, let me contrast. Let's say it's halftime of the game. And yep. you have, you've been looking. Obviously, you're the coach. You've been watching the whole first half. What will you look at on paper? Like what metrics or what data or anything will you look at to say, is what my eye is seeing matching what is showing up in the data? Yeah, the, the three things we always track and we always talk about and look at at halftime or a, stat, a defensive stat that we call kills. Uh, and that's not as much on the box score. It's more kept on by one of my staff members. It's getting three stops in a row defensively. So if you get three stops in a row, we call it a kill. We try to get three kills every, each half. If we get six kills for the game, We've won about 92% of our games here at San Francisco. We've gotten six kills in a game. So that's one stat we'll look at. Uh, We look at our rebounding rates at halftime. So we're not looking at total number of rebounds. We're looking at what our offensive rebounding rate is and what our defensive rebounding rate is. We have goals. We try to get 33% of our offensive rebounds uh, opportunities back, which is a very high, the top 20 in the country, but a good goal. 
And then defensively, we're trying to get uh, allow our opponents to only get 25% of their misses back or less. And if we can have an 8 to 10% delta in the rebounding margin or rebounding percentages, we're going to be in good shape. And then we look at our turnover rate. We try to keep that under 16% for the half. And again, 16% is a top 20 uh, team in terms of taking care of the ball. So if we can have a 16% turnover rate over the course of the game, we've done our job. So those are the three things that we're looking at at halftime. And then obviously our shooting numbers, but those, you know, we can't control those as much, right? We can't control, Hey guys, make more threes. Of course we want them to do that. But those three other factors are, uh, you know, things that we can control and that really translate to winning. Coach, you're talking about ways you approach games and what you look at at halftime and, and, and what you've been doing all season. Is there anything that's different in coaching in the tournament in, a, in this kind of one and done environment? Are you going to do anything different? Are you going to talk to them any different? Or do you try to make things as normal as they have been all season? Try to keep it as, as normal as possible into the game. And then I think the one thing, and this kind of plays off what we talked about earlier, like we'll have a couple things up our sleeve. Like if we feel like, uh, you know, we're getting off to a bad starter, we feel like we aren't controlling the game and, and we don't have a good feel for the tempo. Like we might press a little bit. We might throw some zone at them, do some things that we don't generally do. Uh, just to change the complexion of the game. And, and I think things that they they haven't seen us do, they don't expect it from us. They're not going to prepare for that. Um, so those are kind of the, the little things that you can tinker with or change uh, to create a little bit of, uh, you know, dysfunction for the other side. But uh, really our approach is similar. And this is, this is a, a game that we feel like if we can be ourselves, we have a good chance to win. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to, ha- I know we're going to let you go. Can you give us just a sense of how the team Receive the news. What's life been like for the last 48 hours since you guys learned not only that you're in, but who you're playing and where you're going? How's it been? And maybe just yeah, to build on Cade's question, not only are you yeah. in, but you're not, I mean, you are a 10 seed. That's, I mean, people, I don't think people have an understanding. That's not just right. in, that's really right. in. <laughs> well, it, it was really funny because last Saturday, you know, we ended up playing BYU in our conference tournament. And we really felt like if we could win that game, that we were going to be in the tournament. Like that was a little bit of a, when you're in, if we lose that game, we felt like it was going to be a long week where we were waiting around rooting for, you know, teams from smaller leagues, not to bid steal, uh, you know, teams like Virginia Tech that ran through the ACC or Richmond A-10. Like we we didn't want to have to worry about those type of situations happening. And fortunately, we won the BYU game. And so that put us in a little bit more of a comfortable situation. I don't know if you guys ever look at like bracketmatrix.com, but it's where a bunch of bracketologist info uh, is cobbled together. We were in a hundred out of a hundred brackets on Sunday morning for selection Sunday. Mm-hmm. I felt great about that. And then as we're sitting there at the show though, and they're revealing the brackets, the West bracket went through, we weren't in there South. We weren't in there. Can't remember what the, I guess the Midwest or whatever, the third one, we weren't in there. And so we're sitting there. I'm like, all right, we better be in this eight, nine game in the last bracket. You know, we weren't in there. So I'm sitting there like, Oh my gosh, are we really, you know, we have this big party with about 1500, 2000 people in the gym, people right. like, going out of their minds because USF hasn't danced for 25 years. We had alums from the 50s, 60s, and 70s there uh, ready to celebrate. And then it got to the point where once Murray State was a seven, we knew if we weren't that 10, we were done. And we were worried that A&M was going to get in because they played so well in the SEC tournament. Right. So there was a little moment of truth and a little moment of hesitation where we were sitting there like, oh, my gosh, like, is this going to go sideways on us? Fortunately, uh, it didn't. And now, you know, we learned later that we were the 37th team uh, bracketed the first 10 seed. And obviously our metrics, looking back, we were 22nd in the net. We were 21 Kempom. Like we had really, our body of work, we were nine wins in quad one, quad two, 10 and four in away in neutral games. Like we had done what we needed to do. So uh, it was a lot of stress for no reason, but it was, uh, it was still great. And there was a lot of adulation and excitement once we finally saw our name scroll across the TV. 
Yeah, it makes it just a little bit more rewarding when you had to wait for it there and get a little bit worried. It makes that much more <laughs> yeah. fun. Now, just in a percentage basis, do you have to spend a forget what you necessarily all the players spend time on? Are you spending one hundred percent of your time on Murray State, or is there like a two percent of your time you're spending saying, "Look, if we win this game, I understand it's a big if." But we're going to probably pay a two seed in the next round. Right. I don't even know actually who's in your who's in your who's in Kentucky. your bracket. Oh, by the way, that would be the greatest moment in the history of Moneyball if the Dons play. Forget winning the game; that would be great. But could you imagine playing Kentucky in the NCAA tournament? I'm just saying. Do you spend yeah. even any percent above zero percent thinking? If you don't want to answer that honestly, just blink twice. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, I, I'll, I have no problem being transparent on this one. We are 100% on Murray State right now. I mean, they're they're a great team. I think, you know, Coach McMahon does a great job. We And then, to be honest, fellas, if we win on Thursday, which I expect to do, it's house money on Saturday. We'll, we'll go in with a short prep and see what we got against Kentucky. But nobody expects us to win that game. Uh, we want to take care of business on Thursday night and see if we can get this one done. Mm-hmm. Well, we sure do wish you the best with it. We're delighted for you. We'll be watching it. And uh, we look forward to talking with you more down the road, Todd. But in, enjoy this and good luck. with yeah. your All of Wharton Moneyball Nation is behind you. Trust me. <laughs> uh, hey, I love it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that nation. So appreciate you guys having me on and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Coach Todd Golan taking his USF Dons into the March Madness tournament for the first time since 1998. There in Indianapolis, we caught him on the bus on the way in from the airport reflections on that conversation fellas i love the fact that he has very specific metrics tied to win probabilities um this a, a number of them i had not heard of before and i also like the way that he related these metrics not only to win probabilities but almost in a i'm sure it's more continuous than uh he also described but i thought it was fantastic that they had specific things that they were going to look at at halftime that necessarily the eye test wouldn't tell you i thought it was great yeah and i thought it was especially intriguing that those metrics were all about kind of ball possession essentially trying to control the number of possessions that they have you know things like rebounding and you know kind of the delta on their offensive versus defensive rebounding because he kind of acknowledged sort of explicitly that, you know, kind of, you know, sort of variation or sort of like, you know, kind of having an off game in terms of shooting percentage, that's harder to kind of, I think, correct or something, you know, like, or, or, you know, it's sort of like, that's right. So his, his stats were effort focused, you know, as opposed to like dead gum, make your threes. Yeah, Right, right, right. I mean, shoot better. As he kind of acknowledges uh, is kind of hard, probably hard advice to really kind of operationalize. Whereas, you know, again, some of these more kind of effort like possession based metrics are something that perhaps scheming slash just a different type of effort could, could kind of be changed over halftime. Look, Shane, and the way I interpret what he said, and just in simple mathematics, I'd rather be 40 for 90 than 35 for 70. Yeah. Which one you, I'd rather shoot 44% and get 20 more shots. You know, at the end of the day, uh, stops gives you shots. Offensive rebounds gives you shots. Lack of turnovers gives you shots. And he says, you know, I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I have to admit, while he was saying, I was thinking what Cato always says about the draft. You want more shots. And mm-hmm. he's like, if we don't turn it over, we get offensive rebounds. 
we, you know, we get stopped. We're going to get more shots and we get more shots. I can't control if they go in, but I can yeah. control if we get more shots, we're going to win this game. Or on the other side, if, if for example, you know, uh, Murray state just happens to like have the first half where they're shooting lights out. There's not much you can do about that. Again, it's again, it's, you especially can't make them shoot more poorly, but you can give them less and to work with, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, you know, it's, it's not just about kind of giving yourself more chances, but also giving the other team less chances. Exactly. It's the other side of the same coin. Um, the other thing that jumped out to me was his talking about the guys he got through the portal. And what I was struck by was how quickly it sounds. It, it took, they, they started m- melding as a team he said just a, a few weeks in that they that they were that much better i think that's an interesting topic that's just so much more relevant in basketball these days how do you meld these teams whenever you don't have this kind of continuity that we used to have i think the other interesting thing about the game is that murray state let's be clear to everybody murray state is 30 and 2 they're, they're ranked they're ranked and but you look at the betting odds and the last i looked an hour ago, Murray State is a, only a one-and-a-half-point favorite. So when he mentions that in Ken Palm and BPI, they're like 21-22, well, the data supports that because if they were ranked 40th or 45th or 50th, if they were the last one in, they'd be a 7-10-point to 10 point dog to Murray State, but they're not. So, I mean, this is a very legitimate 7-10 game. And you know what? I, I just want to see – look, whether it's Murray State or, or USF – I'm excited to see either one of them play Kentucky. I always love the game of two versus seven because people think, well, seven. What, seven's still a top 25 team in the country. You could still be an excellent team. It's not like Kentucky's going to roll. It's not like any two seed. Duke against the number seven seed. Duke's a number two. They're not just going to roll over a seven no, seed. No, I mean, it, I, it kind of makes me curious. I, again, like, so you said, so Murray State is basically – like what rank would they be? Like they'd be like twenty twenty five in the country. Something they were like ranked. They were ranked twentieth. That's what I actually thought. Murray State when they showed Murray State when yeah. I was watching the telecon, they showed Murray State at seven. I'm like, wow. I feel bad for the team playing Murray State at seven because I I thought Murray State was going to be a five or six. I really did. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I how again I guess maybe just kind of like the kind of randomness of the seating. Like how how do you get two teams that are kind of in like you know, like one of which is like a 20 to 25 team in the country. The other one is, which is, you know, kind of only like a point off them in terms of like predicted spread. How, how do those end up in a seven ten game? Yep. I mean, well, actually just to give you an idea here, I'm looking at ESPN's cost college basketball power index. I, I wish I had looked at this before the show. Murray state is 30th. San Francisco's 31. Well, that's one. That's one system. So obviously, they 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 don't really consider power rankings. They've got a whole other set of considerations. You know, these- yeah. This is their BPI. All I'm just saying is, even just using this one system, just to show you how competitive that game is, they're thirty and thirty-one in the power index. Right, right, right. Well, you know, we. I'm curious how you guys have poked around on the bracket. How you what you use to do your bracket. One of the things I've done is play with five thirty-eights model. And one of the nice things about their bracket is you can download their data. Mm-hmm. Their strength ratings are an ensemble of six different power rankings. So including BPI, including Ken Palm, including Massey rankings, not, not my, my, my rankings. And so you get a nice blend of rankings there. And then they run a pretty sophisticated um, sim, as you'd expect. But it, it gives you a sense of um, 
you know, you could look at any given game. It'll give you probabilities. So, so for example, this Murray State-San Francisco game is 58% Murray State. That sounds like a little bit more than a one-point line to me, yep. but that's what they give based on the power rankings. Um, so, anyway, I'm curious. How you guys – we all had to put in final four picks. How did you arrive at your picks? What, how have you been consuming the brackets and making sense of the brackets? So, I can just go first just quickly. Um, I – the seedings – tend to work. And so um, I rarely, in early rounds, I might pick a, you know, I don't know, a, an 11 against a six, but I'm really, it's hard for me to pick an 11 against a three or a two. You know, you're basically saying a team ranked 40th is going to beat a team ranked in the top 10 to 15. And I'm not saying it can't happen and it will happen. And I'll get one of those wrong, but it's really hard to pick that. And so I did more, if you'd like, and this is, by the way, the data shows this. I'm going to pick more upsets, if you'd like, in quotes, in the 5 to 12 range. The minute you get four playing 13, three playing 14, you're talking, Kate, I mean, you're talking 80-20, 90-10. It's just hard to predict there. And as a matter of fact, um, I even have it right here, the data. Um, the, just to give you an example, uh, the 12 seed wins. Well, I don't know if you guys are staring at the spreadsheet I loaded, but the 12 seed, what probability would you say the 12 seed has in beating a five seed? Would I wouldn't say I would look it up because I know these things are known at this point. I would have thought, um, I don't know, 15, 25, 35, 35, 35 percent. Yeah. The 12 okay. seed wins 30. Oh, but is that but is that one out of order? Because isn't 12, five, the matchup that has a surprising number of upsets kind of. Well, weird. well, the 11 seed, by the way, it's 30. anecdotally. But I looked at it, it actually is monotonic. It's not like 12. It five is, mon- kind of it is monotonic, but it's flat between 10, 11 and 12. And then a cliff. It goes down to 20 percent for the 13, then 15 and then six, and then essentially zero. So Eric, it appears is that is that, uh, is that is the flatness at the bottom of the at large bids, and then the cliff goes to the automatic qualifiers. Yes, that's a very good way. Of, that's actually I hadn't thought about that in advance, but that it probably exactly matches at okay. large versus automatic qualifiers. But it, but what it says is you you know be reasonable, pick up sets in the ten through twelve, maybe thirteen range. After that, you know it's really not going to happen that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's basically, you know, when I did my bracket, it was kind of, it was basically following those odds, like taking the probability of any of these matchups, whether it's, you know, one versus 16, etc. you know, that taking that probability one versus 16, it's essentially zero. Well, and then just flipping it's through. One, it's one, it's one. Our buddy Hal Stern estimated it at one. Yeah. Well, here's another way to think about it. This is a wonderful data point for San Francisco. They have a better chance. Let me say, I'm going to say this very quick, very specifically. By historical odds, San Francisco as the 10 has a better chance of getting to the sweet 16 than the eight or nine seed. Mm, because they don't have to play the one if they win. Ah, exactly. Matter of fact, it's 16% of 10 seeds make the sweet 16. If you told Coach Golden right now, you've got a one in six chance of right. making it to the 16. He would take it. By the way, Kate, for the nine seed, remember, they're the underdog twice. It's 4.9%. They're three times more likely than the nine. As a matter of fact, the committee did them a favor by making them a 10 versus a nine. This is one thing that Stern found, and we talked about it last time. He wrote this article. This is y'all's friend. He was on your committee, Eric, um, a, a well-known statistician, done some sports work. He wrote a piece in 98 on estimating the chance that a 
16 would be to one. But along the way, he estimates all these probabilities. But one of the observations I've always remembered from that is that the ones are different. And if you want to look at the chance of any seed beating another seed just by the numbers, you have to estimate that separately if it involves a one. And it's just the right tail. It just kind of pokes out there a little bit. And this year, if you look at that, especially if you look at power rankings, yeah, the ones are different, but really one of those ones is more different from the other ones. And it's Gonzaga yeah, it really that really is head out. and shoulders above everyone else, according to the system. But, you know, even Gonzaga, you look at 538, 538 gives them, I don't know, I think something like 27%, 27% chance to win the whole thing. And it is head and shoulders above the next highest chance. The next highest chance is like 8%. The other ones are like 8%. And you start thinking about, oh my gosh, Gonzaga is so much better than everyone else. And then it starts feeling like, well, how can you think anybody but Gonzaga would win this tournament? Because there are 68 teams in this tournament. Even the most likely team, even the clear favorite is not very likely to win the dang thing. Yeah, and again, uh, also, even if you said Gonzaga is very, very likely to make the Final Four, which is probably true, by the way. But, or even the top Elite Eight, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they could get beaten. They absolutely could get beaten. Remember, they got, they got beaten last year in the finals by Baylor, which I think, by, and I don't think the game was particularly close. I don't remember the final score. Maybe Baylor won by 8 to 10 range. It wasn't like it was a one-point game or anything like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm not so convinced. Matter of fact, in my bracket, which, by the way, for all our listeners, if you follow us on W Moneyball, or, or, or for those of you that want to follow Wharton at Wharton, you can see all of our predictions for the men's and women's Final Four. Please uh, like it, share it with your friends, and see uh, greatest, greatest, and see if your predictions can beat ours. Yeah, so, and I mean, I've got them winning it all, but I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I, I think Kate's point is, is the right one that with, you know, a tournament like this, you know, you can, even if there is one team that's kind of head and, you know, kind of in the power ranking sense, clearly above the rest and Gonzaga, at least according to 538 is there is, you shouldn't, it, it, it feels like you, there, you know, you want to impose some kind of inevitability on that, but you know, it's still, you know, each of these games is highly, you know, is stochastic. Yeah. Unquestionably. I mean, I'm struck by both these things. It's important to talk about that stochasticity, but just let me give you the sense of the difference in power rankings. And again, these numbers come from 538, but this is their ensemble of six different power rankings. Only one of which is their ELO. So they have Gonzaga number one at 96 and a half, and it's a five point drop to number two, Kansas. Okay. And if you want to go five more points, you get all the way down to, you got to go down to like the 17th best. So the gap between number one, Gonzaga, number two, Kansas is the same as the gap between number two, Kansas and number 17. I love it when you do that. Like when you do that with the NFL, that, that, that is so, I mean, that is a massive gap. It's a great way to norm it. Okay, so that I mean, I, we're saying both things though, because because Shane is exactly right. We 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 really have at the end of this system, at the end of the season, it's really seen a lot of different teams look good. A lot of different teams have held the number one spot. At it, it, one has emerged as head and shoulders above the others according to the to the power models. But the tournament's the tournament, man. The tournament's the tournament. One game only- knockout. One game knockout is in heaven. It is so highly stochastic that even large differentials in quality, you know, can there's going to be a lot of upsets. Let me give you one other observation that I took from the 538 data because you can download. There's beautiful. You can download their stuff, and so they've got these power rankings, right? And then they've got the probability of advancing at every stage. And so one of the things you can do is look at. I'm kind of curious, you know, 
do some teams have tougher paths than others? Because sometimes your team gets drawn into a, a, a regional like gum, that's just a tough regional. So for me, the West, partly because Gonzaga is in there, but also Duke is in there. Texas Tech is in there at the three. It feels like a tough one. So I just wanted to ask, how does the probability of advancing to the final four, how is that a function of their power rating? So you can kind of draw an expected probability of advancing the final four as a function of how good your team is, right? And then if your team falls off of that line above or below, then you're on kind of an easier strength of schedule or a harder strength of schedule. Does that make sense? Yep. So for example, Duke has the biggest, uh, the most difficult draw according to this approach that you would have expected them to advance to the final four with something like a 19% chance, but 538 only gives them 11% chance. And that difference is the biggest one in the whole in the whole thing. I think that's what they. I, by the way, I'm happy to hear that. Not because I, I'm a Duke hater, which I am, but it's not because of that. It's just because they didn't win the ACC tournament. They didn't beat North Carolina in the last game of the season. I hope they are the bottom of the two seeds because that's what they deserve to be. Well, real quickly, Coach Golden mentioned the bracket matrix. They bracket matrix picked the right order for like the first five, six seeds, except for Duke. Duke jumped. Duke yes. is higher than expected. It's political, political to get on the two line. All right, guys, that's been Q2. That's the first half of Wharton Runbell. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q3 on this week's show. You guys can jump in here and join us. We've got Eric here. Shane is here. This is Cade. Audie is away. We love to hear from you guys. We follow all of our guests on, the, on, on, on Twitter. It's a great way to reach out to us. At WMoneyball is our handle there. At WMoneyball. We're tweeting about the world of sports and sports analytics on a regular basis. And we do hear from you guys. Suggestions, complaints, questions. Good way to reach out to us. You can also send us an email. Email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything we get from you guys. We get as much of it on the air as we can, and we'd love to hear from you. Guys, we have a short Q3 here to make a quick round of the world of sports. I got to start with this news, which is just so ridiculous. I'm just so over it, but y'all won't be. Tom Brady's going to play football again, apparently. Yeah, it was honestly, it made my weekend. <laughs> no, I'm so happy he's back. He couldn't even stay. Uh, what was it? 40 days or something like that. He was retired for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He, uh, I, I guess, uh, I guess uh, the home life wasn't really, you know, he he missed uh, getting, you know, run at by gigantic uh, dudes and stuff like that. But uh, I, I even think about how strategic what Tom Brady did was, which is there's a reason why you say, well, he, he stepped on the NCAA brackets he had to announce it that day because free agency started the next day. The last thing he wants to do is come back to a Tampa Bay team where all the free agents have left. He had to announce it so that all the free agents were like, wait a second, Brady's back. We're going to win this shit. Now I'm going to, you know, so now all of a sudden they signed, re-signed Carlton Davis. Now all of a sudden the center Jensen re-signed, you know, who knows there, you know, I know there's a joke, but you know, maybe Ali Marpet, the guy who said he's going to retire and go get his master's degree. I don't know. All of a sudden maybe he'll come back well Bronx the Buccaneers like, just traded for Shaq Mason actually so they've got an uh from the Patriots so they've oh, got a new okay. right tackle anyway but yeah right. no, I mean I I do think that like conditional on him deciding to come back of course 
Freddie's going to try and optimize it to help out the team. I mean, he is still, you know, he's got the the number one goal, which is winning the Super Bowl, and he's going to kind of try and try and do his uh, kind of act optimally towards that. I mean, I do think it's kind of interesting. I'm, I, I mean, it makes me wonder kind of where, you know, where his original retirement kind of motivation came from and, you know, why he decided to kind of change his mind. But I'm very happy he did because, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to see that guy play until he sucks, you know, as opposed to like kind of, you know, I mean, or, or, or seeing if it ever, ever, if it ever happens that he sucks, you know, I mean, well, that's, I my, like that's we, my question. How often, yeah. if, if, how often do we see great athletes retire too soon, right on time or a little too late? And now and I, I don't, it's up to them and it's their utility, but in terms of performance and like our memory of their performance, mm-hmm we tend, they tend to stick around a little past their prime, right? I'm not saying that's not optimal for their lives. I'm just saying, I what are your expectations for him? I'm remembering, you know, Peyton Manning ba- barely able to throw a forward pass before it was all over. Yeah. Or Drew Brees, you know, yeah, I think very few kind of athletes, even the very elite ones kind of retire by choice. Usually it's kind of more or less forced upon them by injury or ineffectiveness, you know, I think Drew Brees would have loved to play another couple seasons, but, you know, just wasn't able to. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in, kind of intrigued by when Brady finally does retire, will it be by choice in like another year or will it be because he actually, you know, this is finally he's going to enter like a less effective way, like phase with the extra stochasticity that it could just, you know, he's still one like Von Miller hit or something like that away from being immediately retired. <laughs> God. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking I was just thinking even about the uh, Tom Brady loss function. Like you start to think about this, like what does now that he won a Super Bowl without Belichick, you could easily imagine the opposite logic going like, what does he have left to prove the bet? Uh, obviously, if he went it, he's still the goat, whether he wins eight or seven. But imagine he goes out and has a really horrible year. <laughs> then the narrative will change and say he's still the goat. But boy, he stayed a year too long. And in fact, yeah. that's the way the sentence will go. He's the goat, but he stayed a year too long. Yeah. So you would think, just from a loss perspective, wow, that was a brutal thing. You know, it was, it was a it was a strange choice that he made, just from a what does he have to gain to what does he have to lose well, perspective. How do you think about? Let me give you an athlete and ask you how you think of him. Give me give me a give me a one sentence summary. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan stayed too long. Michael, Michael Jordan. Well, you said, you first you have to say he's the goat, and then you say he stayed too long, right? Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, he was the goat, but you know, you know, at the end he became purely a jump shooter, and also Michael Jordan. You know, basketball is obviously very different than the NFL, but Michael Jordan's game depended a lot, a huge amount on athleticism, which he just did not have. And also, it's a lot of people say, "Well, what about LeBron? What about Kareem?" Yeah, but here's the thing: Kareem's seven foot two. So, you know, you can't teach height. Athletic, he's still seven foot two today. I saw Kareem recently. He's still seven foot two. <laughs> Michael Jordan is generously listed at six six. You know, LeBron is six nine, six ten, two seventy. Totally different body type. Jordan, I saw Jordan a lot in his last season, including I was at Jordan's last game, and he was very unathletic then. He could still hit jump shots. His game had changed entirely. He couldn't. He just couldn't do it also for long stretches of time. That's the other advantage of the NFL. 
you don't need Brady to be great for 60 minutes a game in the NFL. You need Brady to be great for short stretches of time and for him to win NFL games. And actually, you don't even need him to be great for the whole season. You know, you, matter of fact, you'd be happy with him losing a couple extra games if that meant he was fresh and great at the end of the season. The NBA is not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think a kind of a way of kind of asking this question, you know, like, I mean, it's not something that I, I can answer, but the way I would think about it is if Jordan, in retrospect, looking over his career, if Jordan could go back in time, would he have retired earlier than he did? And I think the answer is probably... Yes. Right. I mean, I, if I was Jordan, I would have been like, you know, probably those last couple of years with the wizards, you know, if I could do them over again, I might've just retired. A or, years or earlier. what he would have done is recognize this is maybe the difference also between Jordan and Brady. Brady's not going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. In other words, Brady's not going, Brady didn't randomly go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He went to a team with a huge amount of talent that we could argue was underperforming because of mediocre quarterback play. Brady going back to the Bucs is because he really believes the Bucs can win the title again. Michael Jordan still believed, even at the end of his career, that because he's Michael Jordan, he could get them to the finish line. That's, I mean, and he just can't. And, And by the way, I'm now a believer This is not the same LeBron James because I watch a lot of games, Laker games now, where I'm thinking to myself, the old LeBron James, the younger LeBron James, let me not say the old, the younger LeBron James would have imposed his will on the style of this game. And I see it now even. LeBron James can be LeBron James for 30 minutes a game. That's what you get. Not for 48 30. As long as the other players on the team don't screw it up, which the Lakers have less talent, the other 18 minutes, you're fine. But if you need LeBron to be the old LeBron, you ain't getting it for 48. You're just not. It's remarkable that those guys are sitting down there where they are in the West standings, just like it's remarkable that the Nets are sitting where they are. The end, the the regular season, the end of regular season is going to be more interesting this year than usual. Um, Before we jump to the NBA, one more NFL note, the numbers that, that are associated with Rogers contract contract are slowly leaking out. Now we've got a note here. This is from Eric, I believe two years, essentially two years, 124 guarantee. Well, that's because he signed a three year, $150 million contract, but his contract for this year was already 26 million. So he basically got two more years and $124 million, Mm -hmm. but it's all Mm -hmm. guaranteed $150 million guaranteed. And he's 38 years old. Now, there's no reason to believe Aaron Rodgers can't play another three years. He was just MVP of the league, and he had one of the great statistical seasons of all times. But I'm just saying, notice the difference. There is a salary cap in football. So Rodgers making $50 million a year towards the cap is going to have a huge impact on the Packers. Aaron Rodgers, I don't spend other people's money. I don't complain when other people make money. But if Aaron Rodgers had signed a five-year $150 million contract instead, it had given the Packers 20 more million towards the cap each year for the next three years. He would have had much more opportunity to win a championship. So he hurt his team. He hurt his team by There's, signing that contract. Yeah, it's a I'm really interesting agree. point, yeah. Eric. And I, I, actually, this is I, Shane, go ahead, jump in. Well, I know. I mean, I guess I was just going to say I'm intrigued as to kind of exa- specifically how it will end up hurting his team. Like, does this mean that they are? going to struggle to resign, you know, to actually sign Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams sounds like he's not willing to play kind of on under the franchise tag that he's been assigned. And so that's going to be an, a continuing issue. So like, is that is, you know, Rogers contract going to prevent them from kind of giving 
of Adams, the contract that would keep him happy and allowed to play. And of course that would be a huge part of it, how it affects their ability to sign defensive players, et cetera. Well, it's a good way to think also in terms of like wins above replacement, that $20 million can get you one pro bowl quality player or two very, very, very good players. And so now the Packers will have two less, very, very, very good players. And so maybe that's the difference between them getting to the NFC title game, which they've done like every year for the last eight and actually getting to the Super Bowl and winning it. Well, it's an interesting question, especially because again, we, we, we say it almost every week now, but in the wake of the Rams Super Bowl, where they so explicitly invested in now, you might see teams use this strategy more often. You were just talking about what the Bucs are going to do since Brady came back. The Rodgers, now you know your window with Rodgers. You got, you probably got three years. That's probably your window. And That's so it. you're going to have to in, make the investments that you think are necessary to take advantage of that window. And what you're saying is his, his salary, the nature of the contract is going to constrain what they can do. I'll no, tell you, I mean, he's, I he's the he's, number one. Sorry, he's the number one fan that he hopes Brady only plays one more year because that makes his other two a lot more likely. Let me tell you that. <laughs> no, and I mean you see it like other teams are kind of. I think I, I think it's kind of like the Brady effect, obviously with the and the Stafford effect too. That you know these quarterbacks have kind of like you know in this win, like basically insert them into kind of win themselves into win now. Uh, kind of situations and it's it has actually paid off the last couple of years and I mean certainly that must be a big part of what Russell Wilson's thinking going to Denver as well yeah I always think about this by the way as a waiting out strategy there was you know we've been doing the show for eight years and every year uh, Shane was like well whatever team LeBron's on they're going to the finals in some sense there are a lot of teams it's not a bad strategy have kind of had to wait out LeBron like you don't say that anymore not because LeBron's still not great but you might say look Five years ago, you say, we might as well not have a, a short-run three-year strategy because we know LeBron's going to be LeBron for another three years. But now you're a team where you see where he is in the arc of his career. And I might say the same thing about the Golden State Warriors, by the way. I'm not convinced a 34-year-old Steph Curry, a 33-year-old Clay Thompson, a 32-year-old Draymond Green can get it done. It changes the time horizon for other teams just looking at the, if you'd like, the statistical arc of aging of other teams. Well, Eric, I, I love that you brought up the Warriors. I was exactly going to go there because those guys, they're not, you know, they're not quite at retirement age, but they're definitely older. And they're, so that window, presumably you're nearing the end of that window. And, and it's going to be interesting to see whether they can get it done. Now, they have some younger guys that are beginning to show pretty well. But importantly for them, Draymond Green finally got back to the court just last night. I saw the most amazing statistic from last night's Warriors game. So Draymond Green was on the court with an overlap for 15 minutes in last night's game with Steph Curry. In those 15 minutes, Steph Curry dumped 41 points. It's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. 41 points in 15 minutes is ridiculous. But what in the 15 minutes effect? that Draymond was no, on the court, I, not a random 15 minutes. No, I mean, he yeah. In those well, the 15 first, the minutes. First thing he, the first thing he did when he got on court was walk down to the side and pitch an underhand ball to Curry and he hit the bucket. That's literally the first thing that happened when he got on the court. But I didn't know that he had gone off for 41 and 15. I mean, that's, that's an absurd rate of scoring. It's absurd. And we also have to give credit, by the way, to the big cat, Carl Anthony Towns, dropping 60 last night. Um, First center to do it since Shaq in 2000. And by the way, they ripped him off. He had 56 at the end of three. I turned on the game because I assumed he was going to go for 70. (laughs) I wanted to see 70. Forget 60. So how surprised were you that he dropped 60? I mean, he's still developing as a player. But as you say, he's he's in a different position than you usually see go off like that. 
where, what do you think his ceiling is? Where do you think we're going with, with that guy? Well, let's remember the data. I mean, he, he won the three-point contest. I forgot if it was this year or last year. He won the three-point contest. He, say, he claims to be the best shooting big man in the history of the NBA. I mean, he mm-hmm. won the three-point shooting contest, as Carl Anthony Towns. As a center. <laughs> he claims I'm, the best I'm shooting really, center I mean, I, in I the history. I don't know basketball as this well year. as you guys, but that's this just, year, just not Max, compute. <laughs> he won the three-point shooting contest this year. Um, I think Carl Anthony Towns is a great player. I think he can be... He's a new era of big man. He can score in the middle, score in the paint, and the guy can really shoot threes. He's, he's you, you must just like him because he's, he's the counterexample to your theorem about how you don't want to give the big man your ball, the ball at the end of the game. It sounds like this guy, you, you want to have, have taken shots. The, the one difference is Carl uh, Anthony Towns has some handle. So one of the things I actually looked up about him is he didn't play center his entire high school and college career. This is another one of those examples of a guy that sprouted up at the end. Like he woke up one morning and, hey, I'm six foot 11. You know, I was six foot five just a few minutes ago. And, you know, when that, again, I keep always go back to my childhood and Patrick Ewing. Now, Patrick Ewing was seven foot his whole friggin' life, basically. And, you know, he couldn't handle the ball and you couldn't get him the ball. And by the way, in last night's game with the Sixers lost, same thing. You couldn't get him beat the ball at the end of the game. And that's the same thing that happens over and over and over again. So again, I want my big man to be able to handle the ball from the half court going forward with the ball in the last two minutes of the game. And Carl Anthony Towns can do that. Well, you've got, uh, you need to keep an eye on Chet Holmgren out of uh, Gonzaga. We're, we've talked a lot on, about March Madness on the show. And obviously the Gonzaga is number one seed, but there's a big guy that moves like he's not a big guy. I mean, you, you see him coming down the court with a ball. You're like, that's not the way seven footers usually run with the ball. And so that's it. Speaking of the new big man kind of thing, keep an eye on Holmgren over the next couple of weeks. And it really started with Durant, right? I mean, Durant's seven feet for all intents and purposes. He's seven mm-hmm. feet. And I mean, come on, it's not even <laughs> fair. It's not right. How fair. great he is. Well, listen, speaking of Durant, he once played with James Harden. And you've got a note here that there's new study out, new standings out on clutch. Can you tell us about clutchiness? Because apparently Harden is not very clutchy. Yeah, so there's two ways they typically measure it. Either time left in the game, and those are just that's a rudimentary way of doing it. Time left in the game, uh, degree of closeness of the game, and they look at field goal percentage, and they rank players on expected number of points scored based on that. The other way they do it is people that have a significant change in win probability, and they look at clutchness there. And I, I've looked at all three ways, and to be honest with you, I, I just didn't want to spend all day on it. I couldn't find Harden's name. He's so not clutch. And so, like, I looked at the top 50. But but top 50 means, I mean, that doesn't mean he's anti-clutch, right? So some people choke. There's how far down the list you have to be before you're considered a choker. I didn't say, did I say he was a choker? I just said he's not clutch. Okay, well, Um, I'm just drawing that distinction. That's that's a fair distinction. Or or I guess it's a very good distinction. To put it in the form of a question, is he actually, he's clearly not among the top players in terms of, probability added above expectation but is he actually negative probability like is he you know subtracting probability i would be shocked if he were negative i didn't look down the list as far but i will say the following i've now come up with a new theory about james harden i'm going to start keeping track of it every game i watch and i will report it here on wharton moneyball and on at w moneyball i don't even think he wants the ball at the end of the game i've now come to the conclusion that he's got 10 years of bad baggage on him 
he doesn't look like he wants the ball to me at the end of the game. And he wants to pass it. He wants he wants to give it to Maxi. He does not look the same. And part of it, Shane, could be age. And part of it could be he's fatigued by the end of the game because he's not known for being Mr. Conditioning out there. And so it's hard <laughs> for me to disentangle the two. But the last five games I've watched, I actually don't think he even wants to take the shot at the end of the game. He doesn't How would you want quantify to. that? Well, you could you could actually a good question. I would think quickly you could look at expected number of points based on where he shoots and do they get a better shot? Has has this updated your opinion of how far the Sixers are going to go this year? No, I told you I didn't think it was a good trade to begin with. I like Harden better than Simmons, who'll never play for the Sixers again. But I don't love it. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I mean, I think it uh, did actually improve the team only because Simmons was not even really playing, but. I, I agree. I don't think it will put him in that upper echelon of contenders. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a, one more quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment. This is our second interview for this show. We are delighted to have join us today, Professor Sheldon Jacobson. Professor Jacobson is a professor of computer science at the University of Illinois. He does all kinds of interesting work. We could do really all two hours talking with him about airport security and some COVID stuff. And we're probably going to drag a bit of that in before we wrap up the show. But the reason we reached out to him is he's a little like us in that he's a serious guy, but he dabbles in sports. Nevertheless, he dabbles in sports and more than dabbles, I would say. Professor Jacobson, before we dive into it, just want to say hello and thank you for making time for us. Well, thank you for having me on your show. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's men's and women's basketball tournament time, March Madness time, which is terrific from a sports watching perspective, but also terrific from a statistics and forecasting perspective. And it sounds like this is something that you've really gotten into over your career. And in fact, our discussions on the show over the last two weeks are intersecting with your life. We didn't even know that this was happening, but the Bracket Odds website that you've you've built there at the University of Illinois is what we promoted on our show last week as a good vehicle for people picking their brackets. We like these sims. We think they're great ways for people to do their forecasting. And you've you had one of the only ones and a, and, a, and a rigorous one at that available and our community our twitter community recommended to us we loved it so we promoted it and in fact over the weekend as i was i was under duress being forced to pick some some final four um picks i was punching up your bracket odds site so thank you for that and we'd like to hear more about it because it sounds like it's a research venture as much as anything that's right around 15 years ago we started to look at the the tournament march madness as an opportunity to use data to inform decision-making, which is what I do research in. And we started to kind of tinker with different approaches. There's, and there's a number of people like Ken Pomeroy, the Sagarin, they all use you know, team characteristics and performance. But what we wanted to do is something a little different. We said, are the seeds informative enough to be able to actually be predictive of themselves, a very coarse measure, the seeds. Mm-hmm. 
And we started to do some research. And our first research project was we looked at the ones versus the two versus the three seeds. How different are they really? Because I've always been baffled by that. Is it really make a big difference if you're a one Mm -hmm. versus a two versus a three? They're, They're very good seeds. Well, it turns out it makes a difference early in the tournament, and we tested this statistically, but as you progress in the tournament, especially when you get to the Elite Eight, the, the seeds basically are irrelevant. Oh, really? Yes. Irrelevant is a strong word. You don't mean irrelevant. You mean less predictive than you would expect. Statistically irrelevant. Get out of here. Really? In the Elite Eight on? No In kidding. the Elite Eight. Now, it turns out the seeds start to matter again in the national championship game, where the ones dominate. But when you get to the Elite Eight, if a one is playing a two or a one is playing potentially a three, the one isn't as dominant anymore statistically. And huh. we were baffled by this. We published the results, got a lot of attention, and we started to continue to look at models, statistical models, to understand the impact of seeding on performance. And that's eventually gave us that kind of that moment, that 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 moment of awareness saying, can we translate all of this thought into a website that would help people better understand and enjoy the tournament? Yes. So we got students involved and we built Bracket Odds, which is a STEM learning lab, science, technology, engineering, and math. And we did this to give students the opportunity to transition their ideas and data analysis and data science into a real event. And we've had a tremendous number of students. And when they come and join us, they, they want to know what to do. And we say, what do you want to do? <laughs> give them the freedom and the creativity to do anything they want. And they propose different things to us. And they've built the whole structure of the website. And what ended up happening is that it started to take on a life of its own because the media started to catch it. Uh, we started to, in fact, get a lot more attention. We've had Bleacher Report sent a crew to look at some of the things we were doing a few years ago. Uh, the Associated Press has, has, in fact, written stories. In fact, there's one that just came out. They quoted me on a few things today. Uh, all of these things have grown out of a simple question of how we can use data to inform decision making in building people's brackets. Mm-hmm. And the fun of it is that it, it's working and it does work. Uh, We've also come up with different models to put brackets together. And one of the the big epiphanies, and it's kind of obvious once you think about it, but it's not obvious until you think about it, is should you build your brackets from the outside in or should you build your brackets from the inside out? And we tested that hypothesis. So hold on, on, make sure I understand. You mean mean from the back forward, I mean, from the the end backward or from the beginning forward? Is that what you mean by in? For it, for building it from the outside in is building it from the round of 64 to the national championship game. Right. Okay. Building it from the inside out is, is starting at the national yep. champion and building backwards. Okay. Got it. Round of 64. And it turns out building backwards is better than building in, but it's not optimal. And what we found was optimal <laughs> is starting either with the round, uh, the elite eight or the final four. Okay. And tested that hypothesis by generating millions of brackets. So we were blind to the outcomes, but we knew what the outcomes were anyways. Um, and we tested that theory. And then last year, we really wanted to put it to a test. So what we did is we used three different models, one based on starting with the Elite Eight, one starting with the Final Four, and one starting from the outside in, what everybody else does. So hold on, Professor, I don't quite yet understand. What does it mean for a model to start with the Elite Eight? The first place we fill in the teams is at the Elite Eight. And we have models 
to actually do that based on, turns out, truncated geometric distributions. Because we fit the data to that and found that, in fact, they do fit quite well. Um, so this is the way we approach I see. So, so, so you, you basically, you, you condition for a fixed kind of, some kind of, you've come for a fixed abil- team ability for each of the 64 teams in the tournament, you're talking about just sort of where, you know, where you start filling in the bracket, but like constant in, in all these kind of comparisons is this measure of the, t- like, like essentially the ranking of the teams. What we did is we all, we use our seats, all so let me- the seats. Okay, so let me let me see if I understand, uh, Professor. So I've done some machine learning models that do the following, and just tell me if this analogy is right. Because besides being a statistician, I'm a professor of marketing. Let's imagine I want to predict sales six months out. So I have two ways I can do it. One way I could do it is I could build a month-to-month predictive model. Let's call this your I'm starting outside and going in. Another way I could do it is just look at the sales six months out. And I'm going to forecast that six months out sales. And that's what I understand. And please correct me if I'm wrong, what you're doing. Let's just take the results of eight seeds. Uh, who makes the final eight? Let's predict those from the seeding. Forget that there are even rounds before it. And you're going to compare that to predicting one round at a time. Do I have that's exactly what we're doing. Exactly what we're doing. You can think of it as reverse engineering yep. the brackets. And we tested this theory last year where we generated 1 million brackets from each of these approaches. And we put them in a vault, basically. We didn't look at them. We did it before the tournament started. And after it was over, we graded them all. And what people are often thinking about is, how do you get all of them being good? You can't get them all good. You just need one good. Yes. Yeah, so that this does, I mean, first of all, I think this is so important because this is exactly the problem we were working on, where if what we're really interested is predicting six months in the future, let's use the data to predict six months in the future. If our real goal is to predict the Elite Eight, why are we adding noise by predicting all of these intermediate games in between? Is that the intuition for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball? Exactly. That is exactly the intuition. The other thing is that when you fill in a particular round, you also lock in all the games before them that feed into that round. So for example, if you have a team in the Elite Eight, they had a win in the Sweet 16, they had a win in the round of 32, and they had a win in the round of 64. Those are three games you no longer have to predict. It reduces your risk and uncertainty by doing it further out. But there's trade-offs because you have to pick eight, and what are you gaining? Well, you're gonna end up gaining 24 games that are pre-filled. If you do the final four, you have to pick four, but then you've filled in all those other previous ones as well. So you've saved all those games. This is the thinking that goes into reverse engineering your brackets. And once you describe it, it's pretty obvious, but it's not obvious until you see it. And, and so I'm, yes, it I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. thick enough that it's not, not yeah, obvious I, I, to me. Um, what, in, in substance, how do those eight teams vary from what you find if you just simulated forward from the outside? Well, it turns out that if you do the simulation from the outside in well, in theory, it should work better or at least comparably. But the problem is that when you do it from the outside, there's so much more uncertainty and noise that what we're trying to do is reduce the set of brackets that we generate 
you think there's too much there's too much noise if you just do a full-on simulation from the outside in that's interesting there's far too much noise and you're going to end up with brackets that for all intents and purposes are ridiculous we want to in some sense prune the set of nine quintillion brackets down to a reasonable number not Sheldon, why why would they be ridiculous if they're calibrated i don't well, know it's and in fact, in fact, I, I would I would worry that my general worry is that people's final fours or their elite eights don't show enough volatility, that they're too, you know, top seed centric or something. Just cycle. Our intuition is that we in our if we do it intuitively, we don't have as much variance as the world will provide us. We're reducing the variance by picking later in the tournament but we're reducing the variance in a manner that we're eliminating or pruning out options that just have never been observed. Now they may be observed. Now I'll use an example, the one versus the 16. Uh, never happened until 2018. And then UMBC, Maryland, Baltimore County goes and beats Virginia. As a side note, Virginia got revenge and they won a national championship the following year. But our models still gave us small probability that the 16 would win that first game. It's, it was very small and it's still very small, but that 16 doesn't go anywhere. They pretty much die on the vine, just like the 15 pretty much doesn't go beyond the sweet 16. Yeah, they, they've, they've gone to the sweet 16, I think twice, if my memory serves me right. Um, same thing with 14s and 13s. They don't go very far. Mm-hmm. And if you look I, I guess at scoring for the ESPN challenge, they give you much more weight on the later rounds. Use that to your advantage in building your brackets. I see. I, ge- so I guess I'm, I'm not understanding though, like, because yes, I mean, a, a 16 seed is most of them die on the vine from the get go. And you know, the, the ones that the one 16 team that like makes it through is probably going to die in the next round. But I mean, again, uh, you know, if you just went with kind of like if you built from the outside in and just went with the historical frequency of these, you know, different seating matchups, wouldn't I, I guess I don't understand how that doesn't account for the probability of these. I mean, you know, a very low like, you know, a team, a 16, 15, 14 seed team won't get very far, you know, if you're building this outside in either. I, well, I So I, I don't I'm not quite sure why, like how the outside in technique gives too much probability if you're just basing it on say historical frequencies of the different ma- seating matchups how how it sort of like fa- biases towards these teams going farther than they kind of really should well once again what we wanted to do is test our hypothesis and that's why we ran many many brackets now ironically in 2021 our power model which goes from the outside in did extremely well uh, and it even did better than the Elite Eight and the Final Four models. However, we found over time, if you focus on, we'll call it the high value rounds, and there's a trade off between what a high value round is, the Elite Eight and the Final Four tend to produce a pool of brackets that are going to be more representative than what you would observe during the tournament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once again, we're not trying to get one bracket. We're basing this on a large pool of brackets. Our, our ultimate research goal is to shrink that pool down to a reasonable number, which could still be, you know, 100,000. But within that, with a high probability that one of them 
will capture enough of the score in the ESPN challenge that it will be, end up winning it. And in 2021, mm -hmm. using a million of each of these, we actually got some brackets that two of the three brackets would have won the ESPN challenge. Now, not any one bracket, a lot of them are, most of them are bad. In fact, if you really want a good scoring bracket and you only get one, just do pick favorite. Pick favorite will actually produce a high scoring bracket. Sure, sure. What my, my sense is, if we're going to give this advice to others, it, it's um, we want to give them some sense of what those elite eights should look like. Or for just simplicity's sake, let's say if we're going to pick the final four, don't we need to give them some guidance on what it looks like? And in fact, you've gotten you've written this up some like what what guidance can you give people? Because some folks are still picking their brackets this is that the, the playing games start tonight. The, the downside of playing games is that it cuts in time how much time you have to fill out your bracket, but some will be working on this until Thursday. I know you've looked at this closely empirically and you can give some advice on how people should pick their final four. If they just jump to that point, but they want to still account for the volatility, how should they think about how they pick that final four? Well, the easiest way is to start at the final four as your basis rather than the lead eight, because it's only four teams. It's one from each region. The general rule of thumb is you want to pick two number ones. Don't pick three, don't pick four, don't pick zero. Pick one or pick two. You, you could pick one even. Ironically, one and two are the most common phenomena. After that, you want to throw a two in. And then after that, <laughs> well, it could be anything. It could be a three, four, five, all the way up to an 11. 11s have been really good. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it's just a statistical anomaly. But if you look at their path to the final mm -hmm. four, they go from an 11 versus a six, then they play a three, then they play a two potentially, unless there's already been upsets. So they're, they're avoiding number one because the number ones seem to be special. And you have to be a double digit. I'd rather be an 11 than an eight or a nine. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. We just, I, professor, we just talked in our last segment. Uh, we, cause we, uh, we had the uh, coach of USF on the line, who's been our frequent guest on our show, and they're a 10 seed. And the odds say that they're in much better shape than being a nine seed because 10 plays seven, seven plays two, nine plays eight. The winner of that plays one. You'd rather be a 10 than a nine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The eight and nine are the worst seeds to be. Uh, and if you have to then be a good seed, you don't want to be a four and a five. I'd rather be a six. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, if you look at, I bet, the eights have made it. The eights have made it as much as the sevens and sixes. But I bet in the years that they make it, they're not as often going through ones. I bet those are years that the ones get knocked off and they get to play a four or a five or something like that in order to make the final four. Well, just to okay. give you guys, the, I know the professor knows this. The odds of an eleven seed or a ten seed making to the elite eight are essentially the same as a five seed because they avoid the one. Yes. That's really something. That's really the interesting. Ones are special. And they, they, they have, they're, they're the special sauce in the bracket and they survive and they continue to win over and over again at the national championship, which means they have to win their games. Now, that doesn't mean ones don't lose. Approximately, you know, every second year, a one will lose to an eight or a nine in the in the round of 32. I mean, this is just, you know, the laws of chance. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you started to give this guidance about the final four. I, I really liked it. You said one or two ones and then throw in a two. You could probably even th make it a three if you're excited about a three and then grab one from further down the line. Grab and it kind of and it, if you look at the numbers, it really kind of doesn't make much difference whether it's a four to 11. Just pick something. But you have given so much extra nuance there. It says, look, you might want to avoid the eights and nines. 
because they got to go through the ones. You might even want to avoid the fours and fives because they go through the ones, even though the fours and fives do show up. But you're you're giving people a nice way to guide that. And another way to think about it is what's the sum of the seeds? We've talked about this over the years. What's the sum of the seeds? And it turns out that this is pretty, you probably have this number as well, Professor, if you want to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. But it it looks to me like the mean of the sum is is 11.4. The median's 10. So the, 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 the median sum of your final four seeds, if you want to pick it historically, is 10. But it's pretty high variance. I will say it's pretty high variance. It, it's, the most common is nine, but it goes all the way up to 20, 20. The highest ever was like 26 or something. That's right. Exactly. And in general, if you look at the trend over the years, that number has actually been increasing. We, we've Is that had right? a few teams that come in, for example, in 2021, what we saw was uh, an 11 seed, of course, but we also saw that same 11 seed two years before or two tournaments before 2018. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we had a 10 seed in 2016. I have the numbers in front of me right now. And, and looking at the sum of them is actually very, very informative. Now, in some sense, you still have one or two ones. You have a two showing up or a three. That's been fairly consistent, but mm-hmm. it's the, what's the other seed that's going right. to happen? If you right. look in 2018, when Virginia lost as a number one, that benefited, it turns out, Kansas State, who was in the 8-9 mm-hmm. game. They ended up winning, and lo and behold, they ended up um, making it to the Elite Eight, but not right. taking advantage of it and ending up having to, in fact, the ballot at that point. Right. This, tre- this trend in kind of like uh, an increasing number of lower seeds making it to the final four, one possible reason could be an increasing parity in NCAA basketball. Another possibility could be, you know, an increase uh, like uh, a degrade in how well they're doing the seeding, either because, you know, they're not modeling it correctly or there's some kind of like s- structural reason or political reason why, why <laughs> the seedings wouldn't be uh, relative to quality. Which do you think like if the if the famous coach was retiring, maybe they get a bump up. They get a bump for example, to, for to, example. just for example. So, uh, do you do you think it's indicative of a kind of an increasing parity in in basketball in college basketball, or do you think it's more about it says more about how they've been doing the seedings over the last few years? Uh, I think it's a combination. I'll have to answer your question in two parts. Certainly, uh, Duke got a little bump up this year because none of the analytics supported them getting a two. Tennessee was certainly stronger than them, and you can even make an argument that Purdue was stronger than them. But uh, Duke being a two made no sense. Uh, At the same time, uh, there are a lot more talented young players. Uh, The recent NCAA rule changes with the transfer portal, as well as that extra year, made this year particularly prone to having more mid-majors make the tournament. And in fact, Mm. they did. Mm. They had a mm-hmm. tremendous number, more than we've seen in several tournaments. As a result of that, we're going to have some surprises. The, the committee has also been slightly biased against mid-majors with their seedings and usually docking them one or two slots. They didn't do that this year. You know, Murray State would have been an eight or a nine in almost every year, and they were a seven this year, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Same thing with Colorado State. They tend to get penalized for being a mid-major and not having the volume of quad one and quad two wins. And they didn't do that this year. They basically treated them for what they were. And these teams got seeded better. 
Now, how that will play out, Murray State's an interesting team. Uh, they, they've scored, they've done very well, certainly in their league, uh, very few losses, a lot of talent, maturity, uh, and they're a seven. And, and I, they're thrilled to be a seven rather than an eight. They, they would have hated being an eight because then they're playing the number one, you know, in the second game if they make it past the 10. Uh, there, there's a lot of factors here. And when all of them get convoluted together, you ultimately end up with unpredictability. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the biggest? Uh, is it, what, real quickly on that point, it's something we haven't said in the last couple of weeks, but we said it weeks ago when the season was bouncing around as much as it did. This is going to be a great tournament. I mean, the tournament is almost always unpredictable, but this season feels like it has a chance to be e- even more that way. Yeah, Professor, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding people have about the tournament, whether it's uh, who's going to win it, them filling out their brackets? Like if you had to pick one mistake that people make or one suggestion or advice besides the one you already gave, which is two number ones and number two, and then throw in someone else. What do you think would be the biggest statistical fact that you guys have found through bracket odds? Uh, when people put together their brackets, they have far too many upsets. They, they think that these teams who they like, or they think something special about them is going to work out. They also ironically overestimate the power of the ones earlier in the tournament. Now, it does make a difference to be a one versus a two versus a three. But if you're only going to have one or two number ones in the final four, uh, or then where are they going to lose? And you can't imagine, for example, Gonzaga losing. They're the overall number one. But historically, the overall number one hasn't done all that well. Uh, in fact, you would think after last year, they know better. They're going to do it this year. And we all know about reversion to the mean. Um, you, you perform really, really well one year and not so well. The Virginia situation in 18 and 19 is an example. I'll use Illinois since I'm at the University of Illinois. You know, they got you know, bumped last year by a Loyola team, Loyola Chicago. And uh, this year, they're not as good a team on paper, but will they be able to get through to the Sweet 16 and maybe even beyond? They may have to play a number one team, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see. Professor Jacobson, one last observation from the from the March Madness side of things. And one of my favorite that I've seen from you, fellas, here's a quiz for you. Which is more likely that all four number ones make it to the final four or no number ones make it to the final four? Well, our website actually talks about that. <laughs> and uh, it turns out four number ones have only made it once. And it turns out... Uh, I would actually have to pull up my website <laughs> to be able to get it. I'm going by memory, but if my memory serves me right, I think it's less likely to have one, a four of them than number than all all of them not making it. And in, so in, empiric- empirically, I think it's three three years that there have been no number ones, and one year that there have been four right. number ones. But you, but that it's a pretty small sample. You say the actual probability is like much stronger than that, that it's much yeah. more likely. This is the interesting bit. It's like, it's much more likely to have none than all three. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and we have a model which enable estimates that, but, but having four number ones is actually very, very rare, but having none, it's still not very common, but it's also somewhat rare, but it's more likely you'll have zero number number ones in the final four than have four of them. That's fun. It's a fun one. So what you've mentioned using the seating, but like when you build a model using data, as opposed to just the seating, like, can you just give us a sense of what factors are in there that help you make predictions of outcomes of these games? 
when we use only seedings, we, we completely ignore the, the teams uh, and their characteristics. We're completely agnostic, which means that a number one in, the, in one region is the same as the number one in another region. That's all we do. And as a result of that, we then have these models, these probability models. A lot of them are based around truncated geometric distributions that we basically are able to use in a manner to inform uh, how the teams will perform. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a base rate approach, which is great. I mean, it's it's um, it's great. I mean, you could also use that as a beginning point and tweak it if you wanted to. But as a as a forecaster, we're always going to say just I mean, your starting point should be base rates. And, you're, and you've just taken that to the extreme and said it's going to be our starting point and our ending point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. In some sense, we're trying to connect a, a beginning and an end and focus on doing it in a manner that history and the data suggests. All right. Well, listen, uh, great fun. Uh, thank you for your contributions, not in just in the half hour, but this website, which is great, and the educational benefits that you're proselytizing. Before you go, we know that you also do work on excess deaths. So this is a pretty hard pivot. We're going to pivot all the way back to Q1, where we talk about COVID-19, because we have come to appreciate the value of looking at excess deaths as a way of better understanding the pandemic. What insights have you generated from your research on excess deaths and pandemic? What we've done is we've, we've realized that you know, COVID-19 has, has resulted in a tremendous number of fatalities, but not all of them are attributable to the virus themselves directly. There have been indirect uh, deaths that have occurred, and we've looked at 2020, we've looked at 2021, and now we're looking at 2022. And the interesting thing to notice when people deny that in fact the, the virus is causing deaths because people are overcounting and misrepresenting. At the end of the day, just count the bodies that die and compare them historically to what you would have expected people to die. And mm-hmm. independent of the cause of death, we're seeing a lot more people have been dying in 20 and 21. And, mm-hmm. and if you misrepresent how they died, it's irrelevant to us. The fact is more people are dying and we have to look a little more closely at hopefully the why and uncover that. Professor, so I'm, I'm always happy to hit this topic because we, we need to do this. We need to use this methodology more often. But there is a subtlety here that's important. And that is we might have an expected number of deaths for a particular place over a period of time. But there's variance around that. And one year is just naturally going to be higher than another year. How do we know when excess deaths are truly excess? Because they might be higher than the historical mean, but some years are just higher than the historical means. And that's why we don't look at simply comparing it to one year. We've looked at several years in the past and looked at the trends, taking into account the population changes and looking at odds ratios, for example, which take that into account. So we're not simply looking for the excess deaths. We're observing them. So are, do, you, do you characterize it as like this is a this this would have to be a one in 20 year event for it to be a normal? I mean, you need some you need to represent it in some way that way. No, I mean, because some years are just heavy. But I mean, there's we just don't have that much regularity, especially when we go with the smaller the population we're looking at, the volatility is going to go up. So I'm super sympathetic to this approach. I'm just curious how we can be quite so precise about it whenever there's naturally occurring variation. And there there is variation, certainly. And that's why when 2020 was such an anomaly, 2021 continued to be an anomaly. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. 
So the, the most parsimonious explanation for two exceedingly high years is the one thing that was common across them. Uh, that, that makes sense to me. All right, sir. Well, listen, Professor Jacobson, thank you for jumping in here. Shane, are you going to jump in? Well, I, I just, I guess, in terms of making it more precise, you know, like, can we kind of, can you actually sort of talk about, you know, because we have a certain, you know, we have a certain number of deaths already we've attributed to whatever it is, three quarters of a million or whatever in America. How much of those are excess deaths versus, you know, like, like, like what, what, what would be the, the ex- if you were to calculate the excess deaths, what, you know, would it be on that scale or would it be, you know, 500,000, yeah. 100,000? Big picture accounting, is it close right now or not? Yeah. In 2020, approximately one quarter of the excess deaths were not attributed directly to COVID deaths in 2020, oh, wow. approximately a quarter. And 2021, we're actually seeing a smaller percentage. So you have to fill in some of the dots, and we haven't done that yet, but we're hoping people will at least think about it. And we have another paper, which we have under review right now, which is focusing on what's going on and comparing 2020 to 2021 themselves. Okay. And seeing what that difference is. Can, can this is this is or we're going to walk up to a line we won't cross here. But can you look at those quarter of the deaths that were not attributed to COVID and explain any of that by say geography? Are there some locales that are more likely to over or under attribute? I think we'll be able to eventually but the data isn't there to support it yet. It takes a okay. while for the CDC to put all this stuff together. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, listen, we do need to let you go. We are very appreciative of the time you took to be with us today. Thank you for the work. Good luck with the tournament. Have fun with it. Thank you very much. Enjoy the tournament as well. Absolutely. Professor Sheldon Jacobson, professor of computer science at the University of Illinois. You can find his work, the stuff we've been talking about, bracket odds, bracket odds, great way to get a sense of the tournament, great way to build out your bracket if you haven't done it yet. That has been another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week, coming to you via SiriusXM and the power of Zoom. This has been Cade Massey with my buddies, colleagues, collaborators, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. For Audie Weiner in absentia, he'll be back, don't worry, for the boss man, Matty Dats. Appreciate all the help, Matt. For Dion Simpkins. Associate producer, associate boss man, making it happen. He cranks this thing out on Tuesday night so you can listen to it Wednesday morning. We appreciate that. We appreciate you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.